0: Um, But, you know, there's been a lot going on in the church, and I don't know if you've noticed, but man, there is a literal move of God that I have been sensing over the last several weeks, several months, especially if you've come out to the prayer meeting. God is doing some, some things I've never seen in our prayer meeting, it's been so powerful. And here's what happens. Every time that I see God move mightily, I know that hell is planning to respond. Because there's no way that we're going to advance without resistance. There's no way that we're going to do the things that God called us to do without the enemy trying to do something else. And so there's this battle that we're in, not just as Christians, but everybody is in this battle. And as I was thinking about this, one of my all-time favorite stories, I don't know if Mark is here. I didn't see Mark, one of our deacons. But... Uh, if you're listening, this is one of my favorite stories. So Mark and I served on the youth ministry together. Uh, he was my administrator, and we had this uh, meeting one time with all our leaders. It was a little bit in the evening, and then afterward, we are going to go to a park and hang out. And so I was like, all right, we're going to all leave. Mark, you lock up. Him and his wife stayed to lock up, and then we left. And about five minutes later, I get a call from his wife screaming, they're beating up Mark. Now, I'm going to be very transparent with you for about a half a second— I put my salvation down and went real hood again. And I was like, yo, turn the car around. We got to go beat somebody up. And so they, they swung the car around. We go all the way back to the church. I come flying out the door, in my head at least. It was probably way different in real life. But in my head, I just came flying out the door, come running full speed. I find Mark on the floor, and, I'm, and he's holding his face. I'm like, what happened? What happened? Are you all right? Like the cops had already showed up. And I'm like, what's going on? And I look, and Mark's got a literal dent in the side of his head. And I'm like, dude, like, what happened? So he tells me there was, uh, there's this club that was on the end of this block, and there was two girls who were getting mugged by some guy trying to steal their purse. Mark heard the commotion, being the man of valor that he is, went over to try to help. And so he sees this guy trying to steal these girls' purses, and Mark walks up, and he kicks the dude in the butt. And once he kicks the dude in the butt, the dude turns around and just starts swinging haymakers at Mark and clocks him right in the side of the face. Now, Mark's telling me this whole story and I'm listening attentively. And at some point I go, okay, um, Mark, did you fight back? He goes, no. I go, why? He said, I didn't want to get into a fight. I I said, Mark, I know you grew up in the jungles of Venezuela. As a missionary kid, but let me tell you something about the streets here. The moment you kick another man in the rear end, you started the fight. The fight's done kicked off. Like you, you really can't do anything. You might as well swing, all right? You, you've already gone that far. And and then it was even funnier when I found out it was a teenager and and it was like, he was like a buck five wet, and. I was just like, I almost beat up a kid that could have been in our youth ministry. Like It was just a surreal kind of thing, right? But I'm saying all that because I need you to understand something very important. We are in a spiritual battle, whether you like it or not. Whether you want to fight or not, you really don't have a choice in that specifically for believers, if you have said yes to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been listed in a war. Whether you like it or not, you are in the battle. And I can say this even further, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're like, man, I'm just checking this thing out, you are still in that same battle, okay? You are still in the same fight because the enemy wants to do everything he can to keep you where he has you. And so here's the reality. I think it's important for all of us to understand. The devil is very real. You cannot believe in God and deny the existence of the devil. Now, if I can add a caveat, it is not God and the devil. They are not equal by any way, shape, or form, okay? So it's not the battle of good and evil, God versus the devil. No way, shape, and form, right? God, if he chooses to, could just wink, and the devil and all of it is destroyed, Now, the reason God allows the devil to function in his role is because it's part of his purpose and his plan, it it creates options, it creates opportunities that God utilizes to strengthen you and to build you up. So God really is using the devil, and the devil really is fighting a losing battle. But in his mind, and I think the devil knows this, I might lose, but I'm going to take as many of your people as I can down with me. And that's the goal and the strategy of the devil. I'm going to lose this war, but I'm going to take as many of your people as possible. And so we're starting this new series this month that I've entitled, Know Thy Enemy. In in one of the most famous works of of war literature, The Art of War, one of the main tactics and chapters is called Knowing Thy enemy. In order to win a war, in order to win a fight, you have to understand and know the enemy, know their tendencies, know their tactics, know their culture, know how they think, know what they do. You have to really understand the enemy so that you can understand what the enemy is trying to do. And I don't think it's any different when it comes to spiritual warfare. You cannot fight this battle and be ignorant of the tactics of the enemy. And so Each week, we're going to focus in on one of those tactics, and this morning, I want to look at the most old-school, tried-and-true, famous tactic that the enemy uses, and that is the tactic of temptation. Listen to me. The devil doesn't need new tricks because the old ones work just fine. Temptation is one of the most utilized weapons that the enemy puts in front of you and I. See, you got to understand, as a believer, the enemy can't make you do anything. So what does he do? He tries to tempt you away from the Lord. Okay, He can't force you. He can't hurt you. He he is a dog on a leash. He cannot go further than the Lord allows him to. But what he can do is entice you, tempt you in such a way that it'll draw you away from the hands of the Lord, and it'll get you into his camp. And so there's a few scriptures that I think lean into us, but one of the ones that I think really summarizes what I'm trying to say is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Here is a clear, clear message from the Lord. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, when it talks about the world within this context, it is talking about uh, how the devil is the principality of this world. Like he governs this world, it belongs to him, and partly because of sin. When sin entered into the world, we essentially gave him the authority that God had given us. And so the devil is in running the world. So when it says the world, it's talking about all the demonic, sinful, bad things that have to do with the world. So it says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Listen, our call is to love God, and what the enemy does is he takes things that are of God and he perverts them to make them look like they're maybe still of things of God, but they're his. And one of the easiest things he does is he manipulates love and turns it into lust. And lust is this covetous desire of something that's not yours, something that's not good for you, something that doesn't belong to you. And he categorizes three lusts that I think are important for us to understand. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three aspects are not just things we find in 1 John, but they are the very same temptations that we see Jesus Christ himself endure at the beginning of his ministry journey. If you read through the Gospels, the Bible talks about Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, and right after he's baptized and he's affirmed by the Lord, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. He didn't stumble across temptiness. You know, It wasn't that God was tempting Jesus to try to test him and see if he's good enough to be Jesus. He was already fully affirmed, fully God. The reason that Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted is so that he can tell you and I that he can identify with all of our own temptations, having gone through it himself. He is fully God, and yet he is fully man. And so he goes through this time in the wilderness, 40 days of fasting. Listen, I... I try to do intermittent fasting, and I intermittent quit. Like, it's just, sometimes it's hard. He went 40 days of starvation, and I don't know about you, but when I haven't eaten, I get a little irritable. And so he went 40 days in the wilderness, just fasting, and then throughout that entire time, The devil himself, not a demonic spirit, not, you know, some of the random, you know, demons that come alongside. The devil himself took it upon his moment to say, now's my chance to try to pull Jesus out of this. There's three things that I want to focus in on when it comes to that story. The first one is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. What's the temptation when it comes to that? The lust of the flesh is satisfying your physical and earthly desires outside of God's will satisfying your physical and earthly desires outside of God's will. You lust after something that's not in God's will. Well, where do we see that in the story of Jesus in the wilderness? Well, Matthew chapter four, verse one through four. Listen to what the word of God says. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. I bet. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told them, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, 40 days not eating. And so what is the devil's first tactic? Hey, your flesh is starving. Your flesh is hungry. Your Bodily desires need to be satisfied. And so here's the moment. Uh, If you're God, prove it then by turning this stone into bread. The desires of the flesh are numerous. Sexual gratification, excessive use of alcohol, drugs, both illegal and legal, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, division. These are all a byproduct of lust, of, of desiring something that you are even willing to covet and kill in order to receive that and it's easy to succumb to what the flesh desires, <clears throat> especially when you're, when you're trying not to. Again, let's go back to, to even just dieting, right? Like you can go a whole day without eating accidentally. You ever had that where you're working and you're like, man, I just haven't even eaten all day. If you're not trying, it just kind of happens sometimes. But if you wake up in the morning and you decide, hey, today I'm gonna fast, or maybe you got a surgery the next day, like, hey, I gotta fast for 24 hours. The second you decide I am not gonna eat all you want to do is eat. It's, it's everything, like to the point where your body hurts, your mind hurts. Everything in your body is telling you, you better eat. We are dying. You are like little kids, I'm starving. It's been 20 minutes, but I'm starving. And this is what happens to us. We, we, we look at these things that the world has and we go, I want that. I desire that. You know, it happens a lot of times even, you know, some of you spouses, you go to a restaurant, you sit down, each one orders their own meal, and sure enough, one of you looks at the other one's plate and goes, uh, yours looks better than mine. And it's not that it's better than yours, it's just that you didn't order it. So now you're like, can I try it? You wanna go hash? Well, listen, if you wanted fries, you should've ordered fries. Like, why do I gotta share my fries with you now? Like, I'll buy you fries, I'm not cheap on the fries, it's just a matter that now you want my fries. Right? And so we always lust after what we don't have. We always lust after things that we shouldn't have, things that we know are not good for us. And that's why it's so easy to succumb to it. Listen, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 17 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. You you can't live your life just going by whatever gut feeling you have, okay? Some of your guts are not reliable. Okay, some of you got some IBS and you shouldn't be listening to your gut. Like, your gut's not reliable. And so a lot of us, we just go by, hey, I'm gonna just do whatever I feel, right? As long as I'm not hurting anybody. Well, listen, you're hurting you. When you allow yourself to just go with the flow, don't be surprised when the tide takes you out to sea and you die. Like, and so this is what the Bible is saying. It's saying, listen, the desires of your spirit and the desires of your flesh are contrary to one another. They're in constant battle. And so you have to let one win. Yeah. So what's the solution to the desires of the flesh? What did Jesus do? He turned to the word of God. He said, hey, listen, if you are really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And what does Jesus say? Hey, listen, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, my nourishment isn't physical, it's spiritual. My nourishment, what satisfies me, what makes me want to go is doing the will of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us when Jesus was, uh, met the woman at the well and uh, he spent all this time ministering to her while the disciples went and had lunch. And when the disciples came back from lunch, they realized that Jesus hadn't eaten. and They said, hey, bro, you got to eat something. And Jesus' response was, I got food you know nothing about. In other words, the desire of my flesh means nothing when the desires of my heart are being nourished. When I am satisfied spiritually, then everything else takes care of itself. Every temptation Jesus faces in Matthew chapter four during this time in the wilderness, he responds with scripture. If the flesh is tempted, then the answer is to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. If you are struggling With the flesh, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with other types of lust, if you're struggling with alcoholism, if you're struggling with drug use, if you're struggling with any kind of habit that gratifies the flesh but kills the spirit, the answer is to starve that flesh until it dies. In other words, don't indulge. And the problem is a lot of people what they do is they stop indulging, but they don't replace it. So like the answer to to like getting fit is not just not eating bad food, because you gotta eat something. Because if you just starve yourself, eventually you go back to the bad food. And so the answer to the spiritual journey when you have the flesh and you have the spirit battling is not only to starve the flesh, because eventually you have to satisfy your desires and you do it back with the flesh. No, 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 The answer is you starve the flesh and you speed the spirit so that the flesh minimizes and the spirit increases. That's why Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Listen, John chapter 6, verse 63, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Romans 15, 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. As a matter of fact, most of the scriptures that Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter four come out of Deuteronomy chapter six through eight. I wonder if during those 40 days, those were the passages that Jesus was meditating on. I wonder if that was part of his daily devotion. As he sat and he read the word, or as he sat and he meditated on the word of God, I wonder if that's what was ruminating in his heart so that when the enemy came, he goes, no, I got an answer for that. Listen, some of you, Because you miss your daily appointment with God's word, you don't have an answer when the desires of the flesh come knocking on the door. Because your flesh is, or I should say your spirit is starving, suddenly you confuse the two and you start to gratify the flesh. But no, that's not the answer. Because if you do that, the flesh grows and the spirit dies. That's why if you ever notice, the more you entertain the flesh, the more distant you feel from God the more awkward it is to pray, to even come back to church because shame and guilt begin to well up. But if you lean on the word of God and if you take time to make that daily appointment, and we've been harping on this a lot, we cannot afford to be biblically illiterate Christians. You can't afford to just take my word for it. You should be going back home after Sundays, reading through Matthew chapter four and examining it for yourself because I can't preach you everything in 30 minutes. There's some wonderful things in this book that you can begin to pull that God wants to specifically say to you. Listen, some of you who've been in this journey a while, you know what it's like. That one day you don't have time, you skip your appointment with the Lord, something happens. The next day you catch up where you left off and you realize, man, I could have really used that yesterday. God had delivered the right word for me, but I never opened the message. I never took the time. This is how we combat the pride of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. Now, the second thing, if you are struggling with the lust of the flesh, then part of that might be the second part, which is the pride of life. What's the temptation when it comes to the pride of life? Believing that God must prove himself to you. The pride of life says, hey, I am deserving of, I am owed, God, you should, you need to, you have to, because I'm the one. The pride of life says, look at me, and tries to elevate your station above where you are. How do we see that? Matthew 4, 5, and 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you don't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scripture also says, you must not test the Lord your God. Hey, don't get this twisted. The devil knows God's word too. And so the devil attacks Jesus with God's word. Now, he manipulates it. He misquotes it. He doesn't say it the way it's said in scripture. But Jesus catches that, and and he flips it back at him. He says, no, no, no. God's word says this, you don't have to test them. Now, what's he talking about? Jesus is quoting, again, scripture from Deuteronomy. In that passage, God was warning Israel not to test them as they had done in the past when they questioned his love and concern for Israel. Not only is that arrogant, but it's prideful to say, God, do you even care? Are you even paying attention? What's the whole point? If you can think about the Israelites, they're like, God, you took us out of Egypt just to have us die in the wilderness, right? Like, do you even care? They start to question God's motives. It flat out disregards though his previous and constant demonstration of love and care for Israel. They're looking at the moment and they're forgetting about the past. They're saying, God, do you even care? And God's like, what are you talking about? Look what I've already done in your life. You know that giant sea that got parted? Yeah, that was me caring. You know that food falling from heaven? Yeah, that was me caring. You know that that pillar that led you and that cloud that covered you? Yeah, that was me caring. And so a lot of times we struggle with God because we wonder, well, God, do you even care anymore? I'm sure many of us have been tempted to test God in that same way with prayers like this. God, if you promise to do this, then then I'll start going to church more often or, or I'll be a better Christian. We are in no place to bargain with God to make any sort of deal like, my kids try to do that to me all the time. They're like, I'll take a bath if you do this and this and this. i like, no, 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 I'm the poppy here. You don't make deals with me, okay? You do what I say. That's just how it works. How about I just take everything away? How about that? And, and as parents, we know to do that, and yet we still test God, and we challenge him to prove himself, right? We're tempted to walk away because our prayer wasn't answered in the way that we thought God should have answered it. Well, you know what? Somebody at church hurt me, so so I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not believing in God anymore. What did God have to do with the person that hurt you? That tells me your issue was always with God, not with that person. And so we do these things where we hold God hostage or we punish God, quote unquote. Again, we pout like children towards the Lord. And then we have the audacity to say, well, if you want me back, prove your love. Well, you know, if, if you want me, show me a sign. Then you do something cool. Because that's what the devil was telling Jesus. Listen, if you throw yourself off this roof and people see the angels coming around, you're going to get a lot of followers. People are going to believe. And what is Jesus saying? I don't need to be affirmed in that way. God's already affirmed me. You know what? The solution to the temptation is looking at God's track record. The devil was trying to tempt Jesus to force a public display of God's approval. But all Jesus had to do was remember what happened the chapter before, right before he's led into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The heavens parted and people heard the voice of God affirming the son of God. He was was well affirmed. (laughs) He didn't need God to prove himself again or to prove himself publicly. God already proved himself publicly. And What does that mean for us? Some of you forget that God has already proved his love publicly for you. When he gave his life on the cross, that was the most public display of love that humanity has ever experienced. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners. In other words, Jesus said, listen, I'm going to prove my love before you prove your love. I'm going to do this not because of what you've done, but because of who I am and how I feel about you. God doesn't owe us anything after salvation. Matter of fact, God didn't owe us salvation. And yet in his love and his grace and his mercy, he has set us free from the power of sin and death. After that, anything else God does is gravy in my book. The fact that I can open my eyes this morning, thank you, Jesus. The fact that I can walk, that I can breathe, the fact that I can show up and praise his name, the fact that I can worship amongst other people, all of it is just a bonus in my book. Everything I have is bonus. It's like someone who's had a near-death experience. They appreciate every day after that in a way like nobody else does because they understand how close I was to losing everything. and We were all that close to losing eternity, if not for the love of God. And so we can't have the pride of life, because who are we? Humble sinners who received an amazing gift from an amazing God. So you have the lust of the flesh, you have the pride of life, and the third thing is this, the lust of the eyes. What's the temptation of the lust of the eyes? To worship what we see, to worship what we see and desire rather than God. To worship what we see and desire rather than to worship God. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told them. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. It's interesting to me how Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms. He's willing to give up the entire world. He's saying, listen, everything that I, all this, everything, I'll give it to you. Which again, in in one certain point of view, this is the whole reason Jesus came, right? To redeem the world, to get the world back. And here Satan is willing to offer it up as long as he gets what he's always wanted, God's worship. The very reason Satan is not an angelic being in the heavens anymore is because he thought himself equal to or better than God. And his greatest desire was to be worshiped by God and by everything else. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's this description of Lucifer and he has these several jewels all across his body. And there was this bright, bright shine that came off of him. Like if you've ever hit the light on a diamond just right and all the fragmented light just goes, everyone, these beautiful colors and schisms. I mean, it must have been a fantastic prism view, just all these lights shining off of him. And I'm sure Lucifer looked at himself and he said, look at me. Look at how bright I shine. You should worship me. What an idiot. Because no jewel has any source of light in and of itself. He was only a reflection of the Father. He was only a reflection of the light that came upon him. Listen, be careful to assume that your light is yours and that you shine brightly in and of yourself. He's willing to give the world if God would worship him. The world is filled with things that catch our eyes and steal our worship. Money, sex, fame, success, even good things or godly things brought about in the wrong way can catch lustful eyes. Jesus' purpose was to redeem the world, but not in that way. Serving God for human recognition can steal God's worship. we got to be careful. I challenge myself on this all the time because it would be very easy for any minister or any servant to start to believe their own height. You changed my life, pastor. You did this. You did that. Honestly, I didn't do anything. I actually forgot to pray about that. (laughs) Like, no, I I can't take credit or blame sometimes, but I can't take credit for the things that God has done. And I'm constantly trying to remind myself of that because if I don't, suddenly I'm going to start to think I'm something when really I'm nothing. Nothing. And so this is a constant recognition and understanding that serving God for human recognition will steal God's worship and even other good things like family, relationships, academics, hobbies. They're all good things that can become bad when they are the object of our worship, when they replace our worship for God. This is where we have to be careful when it comes to prioritizing certain things. God is not saying family and hobbies. He's not saying those are intrinsically bad, but anything that steals God's worship. Amen. Listen, again, let me give the analogy with spouses. Some people don't cheat on their spouse with another person. They cheat on their spouses with other things, with hobbies, with uh, you know sports, shopping. Just whatever draws your attention. Like, I can't even look at you. You don't ever t- spend time with me because you're up all night playing video games. And again, I ain't knocking you for a video. I, I, I wish I could play again. It's been, how old is Josie? It's been three years <laughs> since I've been able to play video games. I wish I could. But part of why, the system's still there. The control's still there. But sometimes I look at it, and this is what happened early on. Do I play this game or do I play with my daughter? <laughs> okay, I'm only going to get so much time with her. So I choose my daughter. I choose my wife. Listen, we be careful about the things that draw our attention sometimes often draw our worship. Matthew 16, verse 26. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Listen, some of us, in, in the advancement of the American dream, we lose the vision of God. As a matter of fact, I was listening to uh, some latest statistics about uh, people leaving church. You know what the number one reason in the last several years, and we have seen, we have just dipped under 50% church attendance throughout the United States. The number one reason why people have left the church is not sin. It's not, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe in the Bible. The number one reason is people move. They move away and they never connect into the body of Christ wherever they move to. And again, sometimes we're like, well, this is a nicer neighborhood, this is a nicer house, but is it where God called you to go? Because if it's not where God called you to go, well, I can't wait, as soon as this happens, I'm getting out of Chicago. Listen, again, I'm not, fine, if that's what you feel God is calling you to, but you better make sure that God is planting you where he's taking you. Because if you're not planted where he's taking you, I would argue he ain't the one taking you there. And so we have to be careful. We have to be mindful of this because any little thing can become the object of our worship if it's not God. So what's the solution to that temptation? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Listen, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. You gotta keep your eyes in the right way. I remember when I first started learning how to drive, I had a couple of buddies of mine in the back seat, and I was super excited to be driving, and as I was driving, I turned around, I'm like, guys, isn't this super cool? And they're yelling at me, look in the front! I was like, oh. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I have your lives in my hands. (laughs) Listen, some of you, you're too busy looking to your left and to your right. Some of you are too busy looking behind you at the past and you don't have your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the one that perfects your faith, by the way. Well, how do I grow in my relationship with God? Keep your eyes on him. Just like you know, some of you athletes who play baseball, what do they always say? Keep your eye on the ball. That ball's coming 100 miles an hour. How am I gonna hit it? Keep your eye on it. Because if you blink, you miss. And in the same way, if you're gonna follow Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. If he turns left, you better be ready to turn left with him. If he goes right, you better be ready to turn right with him. If he speeds up, you better be ready to run with him. We got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And what does the devil try to do? Tempt you into looking somewhere else. Tempt you into saying, hey, look at this. It's shiny. It's new. It's fun. And some of us, again, like children, oh, no, no, no. Our eyes should be fixated. Fixated. Hey, listen, uh, again, I, I, I hang out with my kids. 97% of the time, I'm not with you. So this is all you're gonna get story-wise. But particularly my second daughter, Olivia, I try to tempt her with things. But there's one thing that will always draw her attention and you can yell at her. She won't look at you. There's a certain show that she watches on YouTube. Just a, It's a little dog sheriff cartoon. And that is just like everything to her. Like anytime we have to like get her to sit in one place, say, baby girl, you want to put Sheriff Labrador on? And she's like, yeah. And then she just sit down and sit there for hours if I left it on. There are certain things that the devil knows will get your attention. Certain things that he knows, if I put this on, I'll pull you away. He knows you sometimes better than you know yourself because we're not that clever. We're not that complicated either. And every one of us has a different thing. What might draw your eye may not be what draws my eye. And so be careful about judging somebody for the sin that they've fallen into. It's just a little different than the one you're falling into. But the devil knows, if I can pull your eyes, then I can pull your worship. Speaking of which, worship team, would you come up? So Jesus has this encounter with the devil. Finally, he tells him, get out of here. I worship God alone. And then the very last verse, Matthew chapter four, verse 11 says that the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. You know what I love about this story? Is the devil really is tempting Jesus to use his divine abilities to get himself out of these tempting situations. And what I love about Jesus is he did not rely on his godliness to withstand temptation. He didn't rely on angels to intervene. He didn't blast Satan away into oblivion, although he could have. Jesus went through this temptation as a blueprint for you and I to follow. He was physically starving, isolated, battling with Satan himself. And yet, the number one thing he did, the thing you and I have to do when it comes to temptation, is Christ endured. Christ endured temptation. He resisted, he was steadfast, held his ground stubborn for the Lord. Church, you have to be getting to the point where you can endure temptation. But how do we do that? We endure by relying on God's word. You don't know God's word, it's gonna be very complicated to endure temptation. And listen, again, I I reiterate this often, but I'm not saying you gotta read it from cover to cover tonight. But every day, you better take a bite. Every day, you got to start digesting some. You got to start learning some. And don't give me this is too complicated. Most of y'all have a decent enough education. If you didn't graduate high school, at least you got through eighth grade. No kid left behind. you You guys made it. You have basic reading skills. And even if you don't, the Bible is on audio. It's on visual. I mean, we have more access to the scriptures than anyone on the face of the earth has ever had. So that no one would have an excuse. If you can learn calculus, you can learn to read the gospels. But you gotta learn the word of God. He endured by trusting in God's past faithfulness and approval. Don't have a short-term memory about the things that God has done. We're really quick to recognize what God hasn't done and really quick to forget all that he has done. This is why we're constantly saying, write it down. Take inventory. Write out your testimony. Know your story. Remember it. Reflect on it. Because when the moments get tough and, and the enemy comes to tempt, all you got to do is go, wait, wait, wait. I've I seen this movie before. And I've seen what God did in my past. And I know he can do it again. Just go away, dude. Just don't even bother with this. And he endured by keeping his eyes on the joy set before him. Jesus was offered, the very thing he came to get, but he recognized this is a cheap way of getting it. See, if he would have bowed down to Satan and rescued the world, what kind of ransom is that for us? Now, Jesus said this and said, no, instead, I'm going to take your place on the cross. The Bible is clear that the penalty for sin is death. I'm going to take your place on the cross. I'm going to willingly give up my life so that I can take back yours. He endured and resisted the devil, and what happened? The devil ran. James chapter four, verse seven through eight. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, endure, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. What do we read in the first part with 1 John? The idea that there's a fight, between your attention being tempted with the things of God versus the things of the world. And what is he saying here in James? Very simple. Humble yourself, resist the devils, be steadfast, and he'll flee from you. You don't gotta fight him. You don't gotta smite him. You don't gotta do all, you don't gotta throw holy water all over your house. You don't gotta kick up some stuff. You don't gotta light candles. You don't gotta have me and an old priest come to your house and do things. A lot of that temptation will go away when you stop entertaining it. When you resist it. Well, you know, I just I really struggle every time I go to this place. Maybe don't go to that place anymore. Well, you know, I'm really having a hard time with this situation. Stop going to that situation. Well, there's this coworker, you know, she, she gives me a lot of attention. Stop talking to that coworker. <laughs> Get a new job. But I like this job. Do you like your marriage more? Get a new job. Like you do what you got to do to not fall into temptation anymore because your heart is becoming divided between God and the world. And I don't know about you. I only want the one. I want the one who died for the world not to give me the world. I want the one who gave it up so that I can have it all. So here's how I'd like to close. I'm going to ask you to stand. And if you can, we tried our best to give you this communion cup on your way in. What's interesting about this cup is it symbolizes the blood that was spilled on the cross and the body that was broken on the cross. This was the hard way. Jesus was offered the easy way. Jesus was offered... The whole world, if he simply bowed down and worshiped the enemy. But he chose this for the joy set before him. And I've said this a lot, but scripture is very clear. That you are the joy set before him. Then, when he looked out at you, he said, I'd rather give my life than bow down to the enemy and sacrifice yours. So here's how we're gonna close. In a moment, we're gonna take the bread and the cup together. But before I do that, I'm going to ask you for a moment. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? Just listen to me for a moment. Hey, you might be in this place and you've fallen into temptation more times than you can think of. And the truth is, God is not the object of your worship. The Bible is clear. You either belong to God or you belong to the devil. And those of you who think, well, no, I'm in the middle, the middle belongs to the devil. We're not all children of God. We're all created in the image of God. But God is clear that only those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have the honor of being considered sons and daughters of God. So if that's not you, I want to make sure we stop everything and just give you an opportunity to respond to that. If as I was speaking, there was this nudging in your heart that says, I want what he's talking about. And that's the Holy Spirit drawing you in. And all you have to do is lift up your hand and agree with me in prayer. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, then you are saved. That seems easy, but only because God did the hard part. So if you're here and you're saying, Pastor, I've never given my life to the Lord. Or maybe you did a long time ago, but temptation got the best of you and you walked away from God. And this morning you're like, man, I got to rededicate myself. Just signal me by lifting up your hand right where you're at. If that's you and either camp. And I'm going to take a moment to pray for you. If you've never given your life to the Lord or you want to rededicate it, just lift up your hand and we'll pray for you. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Awesome. I'm going to have my prayer team come alongside. They're going to minister to you. They're going to walk you through the next steps. Church, I want us to pray now. And as we pray... I'm going to pray for the communion, we're going to take it together, and then we're just going to reflect for just a couple of minutes on who God is and what he's done. We need to walk out of here remembering that we're not victims, but we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your spirit, God. We thank you that we are more than overcomers, God, that this battle against our great enemy is already won in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we are living from victory, not to victory. And so Lord, I just pray even now, strengthen our resolve, God. Help us, Lord, to be dedicated to your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be steadfast in what you've called us to, to fix our eyes on you, to humble ourselves before your presence. Help us, Heavenly Father, to do and be exactly who you have called us to be. And Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us on our own, God, but you are with us every step of the way. And even more, God, we don't need you to prove yourself all over again. You did so on the cross. We thank you for that, God. Help us, Lord, to never forget the most powerful demonstration of love that's ever been done. And so, Lord, as we drink of this cup and eat of this bread, let it be a reminder of your faithfulness in the past and your faithfulness in the future. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said... Amen. Come on, let's take the bread and the cup.